This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not I have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, 
you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. This episode is sponsored by BeaverFit. And as always, this is another company that I've not only been aware of for several years, but I also completely trust and I know is a great fit for this audience. Having not only been a firefighter in my career, but also a strength and conditioning coach, I've seen the challenges that we have getting the tactical athlete fit when it comes to budgets, when it comes to space. And BeaverFit has solutions for so many of our challenges. When it comes to space, they have the gym box, for example, which is literally the size of a footlocker that when you open it up and build it becomes a squat rack, a pull-up bar, a box, and even a wall ball target. So you can get a full workout for a crew purely on that one box. Expanding out, they have storage containers that become entire gyms. You store everything in the inside and you can then deploy racks and pull-up bars on the outside. They have gyms on trailers you can take from station to station. They have tactical boxes with breaching props and collapse props. And then on the flip side, the durability is another issue that we see. So often departments buy the low bid, you know, the cheapest they can find. And ultimately, that hard-earned wellness budget gets wasted in equipment that rusts and falls apart. BeaverFit's gear is designed to be used in the most extreme environments, whether it's the deserts of the Middle East or simply on the deck of a naval ship. So they are designed to not only be outside, but to be beaten up by some of the most elite operators on the planet. Now, they are offering you, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, 10% off your purchase. So if you go to either the US site, which is graymangear.com, or the UK site, which is getbeaverfit.com, use the code BTS10, that's BTS10, and you will get 10% off your purchase. If you want to hear more about this company, and I'm sure you do, Listen to episode 477 with the original founder, Tom Beaver from the UK, or the founders of BeaverFit USA, Alex Rudhouse and Mike Taylor, on episode 457. Welcome to episode 479 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show, Robert Ingram. Now, Robert is the man behind McDojo Life that you will see on Instagram and YouTube and many other channels. And he himself is a lifelong martial artist, but more recently dedicated his work to pulling the curtain back on fraudulent martial arts. Now, I'd seen many of his videos talking about some of the no-touch knockouts and chi work and pressure points in some of these areas. But as the conversation progressed, I didn't realize that there was a much darker side to this conversation as well. So he talks about deaths as a result of poor martial arts instruction. He talks about pedophilia in the martial arts world. So this is a very, very important conversation for people to listen to. Before I get to that interview, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on. Subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly elevates this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 500 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. And in this case, with Robert's story... Of course, martial arts schools around the world, we need to educate people on how to find the good ones and how to expose the bad ones. So that being said, I introduce to you, Robert Ingram. Enjoy. 
Robert, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. Yeah, man, there's uh, you know, you you invited, why not? Let's do it. I'm I'm excited to be on here and chit chat. Absolutely. Well, I know, you know, I've followed what you've put out recently for for a few years now. Um, but I was pleased to hear that we're not too geographically apart. So, which state are you in right now? Yeah, I'm in Florida. Um, born and raised. So, I love it here. Florida's awesome. And if you notice, everybody from really crappy states, they all go to either here or Texas, and there's a reason because it's awesome here. <laughs> yeah, I know. I was just in Austin last week, and they're they're flooded with Californians now. So it's kind of interesting. <laughs> <laughs> they're in for a rude awakening. <laughs> uh, absolutely. All right. Well, then I love to start at the very beginning. So again, you don't have to be. You know, we we talked before recording. Just be as vague or specific as you want to be. But um, tell me about you know where you were born, and then your family dynamic, like what your parents did, how many siblings, that kind of thing. Kind of paint the picture of your early life. I got you. Well, I was born in Florida. Um, you know, I'm still in the same city I was born in. So that's a uh, pretty cool. I, and I've been, I've been lucky enough to travel all around the world and I I've seen a lot, but this is still where I'd rather be. So, I mean, I got fortunate. Um, but the, yeah, my, my, my mom and my, uh, my, my dad, uh, I was, I was, I don't really know too much about like too many real details that are really going to matter, but you know, I have a, I have a stepbrother, I have a half brother, you know, um, and then, you know, school was pretty rough for me. I was born with a cleft lip and palate. And so because I was born, I had to go with that disability, I guess you could say. I don't really call it a disability, but deformation. Um, I had to go through a lot of surgeries as a child. So from the time I was born all the way until the time I was 16 years old, um, I was constantly having surgeries that were re- re- uh, corrective or corrective surgeries or surgeries to help with the impairment. Um, and so I was always like bandaged up as a kid or I had uh, stitches on my face or I was going through this or that. And so when I was a kid, being picked on constantly kind of like guided me towards the martial arts industry. OK, well, that's a powerful story, um, you know, because there are a lot of people in here. And it's, and it's interesting. I've spoken to people um and you, and you hear people like Georges St. Pierre talking about I'm hoping to get on one day, um, you know, and he, he very much fa- pa- uh, followed the martial path, you know, and he he was empowered by the bullying and then and then kind of took the the higher road and then you listen to people like Bas Rutten who has been on here who after he learned to fight went back and beat up all the <laughs> all the bullies so you've got like a, a new testament or old testament <laughs> post bullying story um so tell me about that tell me tell me where you were mentally because i think that's very important for a lot of people listening you know we think of bullying like, oh he got beat up well obviously there's there's that mental toll um as well and then that can lead us through that very first interaction with martial arts and then and then what that did for you as a young boy yeah definitely well that's a much more specific question so i won't mumble my way through that one <laughs> my the last answer i was like oh uh, uh, uh. <laughs> like, i'm not exactly sure where to go with this but yeah what uh as a kid going through school when you look different or you are different in any way shape or form uh, kids out of curiosity naturally are going to point that out and sometimes it's not necessarily bullying. It's just how you interpret what they're saying as being rude. But I think in hindsight, looking back, mostly in elementary school, um, kids in elementary school were just more curious. And of course, like it hurt my feelings because I wasn't sure how to take that curiosity. And so I put that a little bit more on me. But elementary school wasn't really all that rough. Um, kids are a little bit more accepting. Um Organized sports really don't start taking place inside schools until about middle school. And you'll start to notice like 
factions of children start to group together a little bit more in middle school. Whereas in elementary school, I mean, I guess there are groups, but not nearly as noticeable as when you get into middle school or high school or college. You know, people kind of start to segregate themselves out into the groups that they want to hang out with. So going from elementary school to middle school was a huge shock because I wasn't quite aware that there were these groups. (laughs) You know, I thought that we were like in elementary school. You just kind of hang out with the kids in your class and that's what it is. But you get a little bit more freedom as you get a little bit older in school. And so one thing that happened was I quickly realized that I was not the cool kid. <laughs> you, you're not the cool kid. You were definitely going to be outcasted and shunned because you do have scars in your face and you look the way that you look. And that always kind of hit me every day. I'd go to school and it just kind of started building over to the course of me telling my mom, like, look, I don't want to go back. <laughs> like, this sucks. And it felt like going to prison. It felt like a section of my day every morning was going to be me going to prison and then leaving prison to freedom. And that's what it felt like. I was getting picked on, teased. I was getting beat up all the time. I got into so many fights, as a matter of fact, that the principal put me on a contract. And the contract was that if I got into another fight, she actually sat down with me and my mother and said if I got into another fight, that I would have to be sent to a correctional facility like a correctional school in town, which actually is called Maddie V. Rutherford, which I'm still pretty sure is still there. Um, And so I was like, well, this sucks. Like I'm getting beat up. Like I'm not even winning the fights and you're about to send me to a school where I'm guaranteed to get beat up more efficiently. (laughs) Like these kids are good at beating people up. They're so good that they got sent away from the other kids. You're going (laughs) to put me in that bee's nest. Like you suck. (laughs) So then uh, it kind of came to a head one day. It was in eighth grade. Uh, I was, going into gym class and gym class by itself was kind was kind of horrific because one, you have to change out. And so, you know, as a kid who's constantly being bullied and picked on, you don't really want to take off your shirt in front of people and give them more ammo to make fun of you. You know, you're, you're having to dress down into your underwear in front of, in front of people. And you know, it's, it's a weird time. Like you're, you don't really want to be seen in that light by other kids. And so after gym was over, we pretty much just sit in this concrete room, which was our gym. Our, our not our gym, but our dress out room. And we had wooden benches on concrete blocks. And that's where we sat. And they were in rows. Then I was like in the third or fourth row from the front. And all of a sudden I got hit with what's called a bee stinger was what the kids called it. And they were folded up wads of paper in the shape of a V. And they were really hard on the tip. And you would take them and put them in rub- rubber bands and snap them at people. And they'd leave little welts. They, they fucking hurt. Sorry for the cussing. But they didn't, you know, they hurt. And so I got hit in the back and I naturally turned around and like, like said, don't do that again or something to that extent. And then an entire group of kids, it was like six, seven kids all stood up at once from their area and came over and sat and surrounded me on the benches around me because I didn't really have any friends in that class. Now, I did have friends at the time, but I didn't have any friends in that class, which would have been really handy, (laughs) you know, so like they all surrounded me on these benches. And they start just kind of antagonizing me, like, what are you going to do about it? That kind of thing. And I was like, well, if you hit me again, we're going to fight. Like, that's all there is to it. Like, I I knew it was going to happen anyway, so why drag it out and lie? And so they said, okay, when we get outside, you're going to have to fight all of us. Like, we're going to jump you. And I was like, okay, well, now at least I know what's going to happen. And they didn't lie, at least to their credit. As soon as I walked outside, I got hit, bam, and it was I was just getting stomped out. Like I got hit randomly, too, because it was a big crowd of them surrounded me. And then out of nowhere, I get hit and stole from the side. And, uh, you know, I fought that kid for a second and then I fell and then they all just kind of jumped on me. I actually still have pencil lead, um, a, a scar, a mark from it 
on my finger from where I got stabbed with a pencil during that altercation. I got stepped on. My glasses actually cut my face up real bad. Like my glasses, when I got stepped on in my head, my glasses kind of broke and shattered and cut my face. It was pretty bad. And the worst part of that, that entire altercation was I remember laying there just getting stomped on. And luckily your body does this beautiful thing where it turns off pain at a certain point. And so I just didn't feel anything because my adrenaline was hit. So thank God for that. But I remember looking up and having a moment of clarity and I saw two teachers, the gym, te- two of the gym teachers were the only two there. Um, but I remember watching them and they just sat, stood there and did absolutely nothing about it. Now, I got beaten for five minutes straight. And the reason I know it was five minutes was because they begin beating me when the bell rang. And there's a five minute gap between the first bell for classes to release and the next bell for you to be in next class. So they beat me from the first bell to the second bell. So that was five minutes straight. And anybody who's ever been beaten up for two minutes, <laughs> you know that that sucks. But uh, getting beaten on by a group of six, seven kids for five minutes was just terrible. And I was hurt pretty bad. Um, my face was super swollen. And of course, like, you know, I had a lot of surgeries on my face. So like that was scared me. I didn't know what was going to happen there. And then I remember laying there after the bell rang. They had all scattered after that. And the te- ne- neither teacher came over to help me. I'm just laying there bleeding. And I remember looking over and I saw like these chubby little ankles like waddling my way. And it was like uh, at the time he was an acquaintance, um, but he wind up being like my best friend, still is my best friend to this day. Um, and he was a heavy set dude, like a little fat kid. And then he like came up and he helped me up and he walked me to the nurse's office. And like I'm limping my way there. And during that walk, he hands me a card. And the card was for karate classes. This dude lived inside the the martial arts gym that he was at. He had like a medical issue in which he was a bigger dude, but he trained all the time. And uh, he handed me a card and he said, you need this. (laughs) Those were his exact words. And uh, my mom at the time was terrified that I'd be hurt doing any other sport. I wanted to do baseball. She said, well, if the ball hits you in the face, you might have to go back through surgeries again. So it's too dangerous. I want to do football. She was like, hell no. (laughs) Like you're guaranteed to get hit in that sport. So that's not going to happen. And so I went through the gambit of wanting to do organized sports and she never would let me because of issues. Well, I came home that day, clearly destroyed, beat up. And, uh, you know, I was upset, man. Like it's an upsetting thing. Like I was, I felt very helpless and I knew I had to go back. Like you, you couldn't just not go back to school. So I have to see these people again. Um, I have to go through that every time I saw them. And I was just kind of tired of it. So when I asked my mom if she'd be willing to let me do martial arts classes, she said something that she never said, which was, well, think about it. My mom was very direct. It's yes or no. Said, well, think about it. And then the very next month, which was my birthday, and it was around the time that I started to heal from the the beatdown, my mom gave me an entire year of martial arts classes as a birthday present. She had paid in full for a year. And uh, ever since then, here we are. I never stopped. 26 years in the industry. Oh. I apologize. 24 years. I don't want to want to hype up the resume. It's 24. There you go. Exaggerating already. (laughs) No, but I mean, that's such a such a powerful story. And two questions. How old were you when this happened? Which grade? 12. 12. So it was eighth grade. Okay. So that's pretty much my son's age. And then secondly, were you size wise? Were you a big kid, medium, small? I was actually super, super skinny. Um, So and when I was in, I, I go through like these fluctuations, but when I was in uh, elementary school, looking back at photos of me in elementary school, I was kind of a little pudgy kid. And then when I went to to middle school, I guess I had a growth spurt. So I was like super rail thin. And I was rail thin 
like forever. Like from the time I was like that age all the way until like maybe four. No. Yeah. Maybe, maybe four years ago I was like, cause when I was competing, I competed on like the NASCA and the Waco circuits. And when you're competing in sport martial arts, those particular leagues had strict rules about weight. And so if you were in a weight class, you had to be in that weight class all year for you to be able to accumulate points that would work you towards a world championship. And so if you moved up or down weight, you weren't allowed to go back to the other weight class. Like you were, had to be at that weight class or you didn't get points. So it was all about like discipline and making sure that you stayed there. So I was a buck 55 um, for a really, really, really long time. Not until recently that I actually started gaining weight, but you know, eating helps. I noticed eating goes a long way. <laughs> yeah. So I hear, <laughs> well, so that's an interesting, you know, perspective. And there's a few things I want to pull from that, but I, I can relate. So I was a very small kid, very skinny and very short. And it was a thing. I was the second smallest kid, certainly in, in high, what they call high school in England, senior school. Um, and then we graduated at 16. So I, I graduated still the smallest kid and then went to community college as the smallest kid. And I think it was 18. I finally had my growth spurt. So I can relate to that feeling of vulnerability, that feeling of being small. And then even though I never had any kind of facial surgery, I had grommets in my ears. So I wasn't allowed to swim. So for those, those sessions, I was the kid sitting on the bench, you know, while everyone else did their thing. So I've got a you know, slight, slight, um, um, exposure to that. So. Firstly, whatever happened to the the PE teachers and or everyone else that stood around while you got your ass beat for five yeah. minutes straight? Anything? I I don't know. I mean, I never really like pursued. I know school, especially middle school for me, was more about keep your head down, get through the day. So middle school for me is a very big blur. And what's really sad was I think that I probably missed a good portion of my education through fear. Like you're not paying attention to what the teacher's saying if you're looking over and you know that the kid's about to beat the shit out of you when you leave the class. Like the the teacher becomes white noise at that point. Their lips are moving, but nothing's coming out. And so it actually hindered a lot of things for me. It hindered my grades. My grades were terrible. Um, and, you know, I look like a, a huge nerd, but like my grades were terrible because I wasn't able to really study or worry about those things because at the end of the day, I was just trying to make it through the day. And I had this bad habit, which was directly because of being hurt in school uh, where I would do my homework at night and I always did my homework. I didn't have a choice. Like it was checked by my parents. Like they would look and be like, did you do it? Like, I know you have homework. So just go ahead and show me so we can get it over with. So I had to show them something. And so I just was always in the habit of doing my homework and, but I would take it and I put it in my locker and it was so much easier for me to go from class to class than it was to go from class to locker to class. So like there'd be certain times where I'd go to my locker, but I'd see a group of kids and I didn't want to have to deal with that. So I just went directly to class and just didn't turn in my homework for fear of if I did go to my locker, I'd get hurt. And, uh, you know, it's one of those things where if you, you know, when it comes to bullying in general, there's a lot of misconceptions pretty much made by people who have never been bullied a day in their life, uh, which is really funny. They always say, well, if you stand up for yourself, they'll know and they'll respect you. It's like, it's bullshit. It's the biggest lie I've ever heard. Like, no, you know what that's called? When you stand up for yourself and you win, they will respect you. They will know that, hey, there's a possibility that I could lose this game if I play it. If you stand up for yourself and lose, everyone knows what you're made of at that point. They know that they can beat you. They're aware that they're going to get away with it. And they know the consequences because there's somebody who's already went through that. So they can use that as a test to judge whether or not they want to go into the water. 
And so that's always been a really odd thing to me in terms of how people talk about bullying is they say, would you stand up for yourself? Yeah, try that. Good luck. You know, like how about somebody with like cerebral palsy? You know, just stand up for yourself. Yeah, trust me. Anybody who's willing to pick on that person to begin with could give two shits less whether or not this dude is going to try to fight back. They were going to hurt them anyway. Um, you know, another thing just to go on that tangent is even the word bullying is the dumbest word ever invented. Because when you when you use the word bullying, you create a word that kind of helps protect all of the other words that it should be. And what I mean by that is if somebody assaults you, there's a law against that. You can't just go around hitting people. Assault and battery, those are both laws that are already in place. If you call it bullying, there's nothing you can do about it because there's no law against bullying. <laughs> you know, If someone stalks you, there are laws against stalking. If you call it bullying, well, guess what? Now you can't do anything about it. And so I think that it's probably one of the worst words actually invented is because we're trying to downplay abuse. It's like don't downplay it. Call it what it really is. Like whether it be a child or an adult, the act is still the act. Like for instance, there's not another word for drinking for a child or an adult. It's still just drinking, right? So why do we have to make up these fantasy words in order to basically make our lives harder when having to deal with these situations? Call it what it is, and then life will be so much easier. Yeah, no, I I think that's a very very you know astute observation. I think I agree a hundred percent. You know, and even in the fire service, for example, you know we have what they call hazing. Well, hazing mm -hmm. is not the firehouse pranks. You know, the hazing. You know, it can it can be it it can encompass everything from firehouse pranks to abuse. But there is a line, you know, and the same with bullying. Like there's joking and kind-hearted banter, and then there's assault and battery and, you know, all those things. So I agree with you completely. Hazing in the firehouse, if it's coming from a good place, it's a kind of, you know, uh, it's a crucible that you go through, you know, it's banter. But then I've heard, you know, of that being to the extreme where, no, it's it's assault and battery, you know, black and white. But I, so those blanket statements absolutely do more harm than good. Yeah. I, and it's, you know, like you have all these campaigns out there to try to speak out against these things, but I've never heard anyone actually say, stop using that word. <laughs> like, it's like, you know, your problems would be much easier if you stop calling it something dumb. You know, George Carlin did this beautiful bit about how powerful words are. And he talks about PTSD, um, you know, which originally was called shell shock, you know, and then it turns into, you know, post-traumatic stress syndrome. You know, it's like it's powerful when you start changing words around for the basically to soften the blow for other people because they might be offended by what it is. It's like, why soften the blow? Like it doesn't trying to protect other people because they might get offended by something um, is more detrimental than it is good. Like if you get offended by something, that's an emotional response. Right. And sometimes it's a very conscious response. You're choosing to be offended by certain things because. Sometimes it depends on who said it. Like I might allow this person to say this word, but not this person to say this word. Well, at that point, then you're just choosing, picking and choosing when to be offended. So it's not a response. It's a choice. So I think that whenever we're choosing words, I think we should choose them a lot more carefully. So that way we don't wind up making the problem worse by downplaying what it really is. Yeah, no, I agree completely. Now, with the, the bullying element, I've, I've, you know, chuckled to myself many times where I've heard of, you know, fellow firefighters, also a parent say, Oh, just, you know, I told my kid, if anything happens, you just punch him square in the nose. And just like you, I'm like, 
that sounds like a great plan unless you know you lose you get arrested <laughs> you you know all these list of things that can come you win that fight and then get the shit kicked out of you by three of their friends which happens definitely in the adolescent ages um but a common denominator i've seen is when when you enter the martial arts firstly bully proofing i think comes from to use that word for a second you know it 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 tends to create respect within maybe someone who would potentially bully or assault or, you know, whatever. Um, but that confidence you get from the martial arts, to me, I mean, you do a lot of debunking mysticism, but I think that's the most mystical thing of martial arts, that people just somehow know now, oh shit, that person knows something. That's not the weak person that me as a piece of shit predator wants to pick on. And you see this even in law enforcement, that the... The law enforcement officers have had on that, you know, are in great physical shape and are also, you know, very, very accomplished martial artists. They're the ones that report having the least hands-on interactions. And it's because that person looks at them and like, yeah, I'm not going to fuck with that person. I'm just, <laughs> where, where do you want me to put the cuffs? Is this good? All right. <laughs> you know, in, in general, not everyone, of course. But so with that being said, tell me about you know, your first, let's say, year in the martial arts, what your experience was as a young athlete within that, you know, that sport or that discipline. But then also when you started seeing um, yourself being viewed or, or treated differently after you trained for a while. Well, I think you you nailed something on the head that I, I do feel is important for people to understand. It is supplementary. Like people say, join the martial arts, it'll give you confidence. Join the martial arts, it'll give you self-esteem and respect and all that. Um, it doesn't actually give you any of that. Like you only get out of martial arts, what you put into it. Um, and most instructors aren't sitting there on the mat talking to you about your self-esteem. Um, like that wasn't my experience anyway. And even as I got older and became an instructor, we would do mat chats where at the end of class, we would talk about certain things or, you know, um, talk about manners or respect, but it really wasn't that that gives it to you. I think that one of the biggest fears in the world is public speaking. My opinion of that is that public speaking is scary for people because people are afraid of what other people might say or think about them. I think that they're worried that if they get up there, they might say something false and that somebody in the audience might know something better than them and then they'll be ostracized for it. You know, oh, that's dumb or you get booed or whatever. When you're, when you're about to fight somebody, and you know that you know what you're doing and you know you put in the time and you know you put in the effort of training, you're no longer as worried about losing because you you kind of boosted your ego a little bit by understanding, well, if A, B, and C go down, I have options. Very similar to public speaking. People are less afraid of public speaking when they know what the hell they're talking about. <laughs> you know, when they have a plan and say, you know, I'm an expert in this, they get up there and they talk like it's no problem. If there's a car expert, no problem. You know, they'll just talk to death about whatever it is they're an expert in. But martial arts, you have to carry that with you because it's one of the most useless things in your day-to-day -day life. So you have to find ways of making it actually fit and be useful. And you have to start looking at it because if all you did in martial arts was punch, kick, and choke and throw people, you'd be an asshole. That's You would just be producing assholes. Like this dude would come out and he goes, man, I, I just started martial arts. And you just randomly punch and kick people. That's just not how the world works. As a matter of fact, most of your life, you will not be punching and kicking people. Hopefully, <laughs> you know, and so you have to find ways of making that fit a mold of being useful to you. So you start having these comparisons, these inner monologues with yourself about how this applies outside of 
just punching and kicking people. And you start to really learn about adversity that way. You start to really learn about how to interact with human beings. When you're on the mat, you're dealing with a lot of different people with a lot of different personalities, and you're about to punch each other in the face. <laughs> so do you start off that conversation with, hey, fuck you, and then you punch each other in the face? No. You, hey, my name's so-and-so. Oh, that's cool. And you want it to be playful, and you want it to be useful and handy to you. And then that stuff starts transferring into your regular life, and then you start realizing that maybe the reason that you were being picked on and bullied wasn't necessarily the other person. Maybe it was you and how you were handling this outside stimulus. Were you making yourself a target? How were you speaking to people? Were you speaking to people disrespectfully? Was that person's intent to actually hurt your feelings or was it to open up a dialogue and conversation about something they didn't understand? Um, you know, are you doing weird shit? Because let's just be honest. There are some kids who just do weird things. Right. And then but were they self-aware of that? You know, and martial arts, I think, makes you hyper self-aware. Where does my hand go? You know, what does this look like? Is this technique good? You know, will this work on this? And when you get tested, like a lot of martial arts do, does this look pleasable to my instructors? And so you really start worrying about how people are perceiving you a little differently, you know, um, and I think it makes you want to better yourself. But also, I think it's a very individualized sport. So you have to start looking at yourself as self-improving and you stop blaming everybody else for your issues. Oh, man, they pick on me. Well, that's a victim's mentality. What you would do in the opposite is you would say, why are they picking on me and how do I fix this problem? You know, and so I think that that's what martial arts does for you. It changes your mindset. Absolutely. Well, I had a weird experience when I was a teenager um, and I don't think really I was doing anything because it was a disgruntled ex-boyfriend. So there's not much you can do apart from, you know, not go with that girl and try and repair their relationship i don't know but i mean they'd already broken up when i met her so it is what it is but oh hey dude was i in your way yeah. oh, man, <laughs> but you know it was one of those things where it was you know late teen age going out to the bars and the clubs and and you know again it was never one-on-one -on -one. it was always him and his boys surround me and give me all this and i i've always i had no problem saying you're you're the toughest man i know you could definitely beat me up you're the best, you're the strongest. And then they walk off and you're like, well, fuck, that was easy. You know, and luckily it worked. I mean, it could have also been, you know, resulted in me getting my head stumped in. But, um, but then in town, we had a, a regional taekwondo competition. And I was, you know, one of the, the team that, that got the gold medal. And it was in the local paper. Nothing had changed. And it was ITF taekwondo, tippy tap, you know, looks great on screen, terrible in, in the street. Um, and overnight, they started being nice to me. And I'm like, what the hell is, what's different? And I realized, oh, I won that tournament. It was in the paper. So they probably think I'm Chuck Norris now. So that was, it was a weird thing because for me, I knew in my heart of hearts, I was no tougher the day before than I was the day after. And as I progressed, and we'll get to this in a bit, you know, I was constantly humbled as I went to different martial arts and realized, you know, how partially effective each one is if you just stay in that one. But it was, again, it was that, pro that pro projection. It was that, perception of who you are now so again with, with that journey as i agree 100 percent, there's there's so much self-awareness there's so much self-accountability in the martial arts because it's just you on the mat just you in the ring in the cage um but you know obviously there was a change you know as you got better and better so 
what what did you observe in the way you were perceived by other kids whether it was your change of your attitude like you said whether it was your actual skills whether it was you know people learning oh that you know he's a black belt you know when when did that really shift in in your eyes i mean i don't think i ever really thought about it until my mid 20s so i can't really look back that far and tell you exactly what it was um but i know that i never told anyone i was training um and i know that i was kind of I kind of flipped the switch in a way to where I was actually looking for fights. Like it was much different um, for me personally because I was no longer like worried I was going to get into a fight. I was like, oh, I just learned this. Let me see if I can actually apply this. And then like, you know, I was like, well, everybody wanted to fight me before. So like, let's see if I can still, you know, play those cards right and see if I can get a fight. And I just couldn't like um, and I don't know what dynamics may have changed other than that. Um, but that I do remember looking back and thinking, man, it was so hard to get a fight when you actually want one, <laughs> you know, like when you don't want to fight and you like are just trying to survive the day, all you can find is fights. But then when you're looking for a fight, there's not one to be found. It's <laughs> like the ultimate paradox, you know? Yeah. But I think that, you know, I, I think that as time went on, what I've seen in the martial arts industry for myself is there's more to this than kicking and punching. And sometimes it's in hindsight that you realize it. It doesn't happen right then for you. And you might not realize that these little subtle changes are happening until a decade later you look back and go, man, like I see that growth. I can see that I've made mistakes here, but I corrected those mistakes here. Like I, I guess one of the best real ways of comparing it is like Brazilian jiu-jitsu. In Brazilian jiu-jitsu, you roll with somebody and you get crushed for like six minutes, 15 minutes straight. And then you're driving home like – guy just crushed me you're thinking about all the things you did wrong like you're not thinking about all the things he did right you're thinking about all the things you did wrong you're like well if i would have done this this wouldn't have happened but if i would have done this this would have happened and then you start really playing that out and at that moment it's a beautiful thing of self-growth you're really thinking like how do i improve me (laughs) like how do i make me better and and i think that that just becomes habit it's not just when you're getting punched in the face and it's not just when you're getting crushed on the mat it's when someone cuts you off in traffic, you know, it's like, well, I could scream, but he's not going to hear me. So why does it matter? <laughs> you know, like maybe he's got something more important than I got going on. Maybe his wife is pregnant in the car. You know, maybe he's got a medical emergency. He's got to get to the hospital or he's going to die. You know, like we start thinking and processing things a little differently. Um, I think the real shame is when I see people in the martial arts who don't actually change their thought processes over time because I feel they, they probably miss out the most. And you'll see this more with guys who are in their young 20s than you will guys in their 30s and 40s. Like the guys in their 20s, they they haven't quite gotten it yet. Like they're either real far to the left where everything is spiritual, <laughs> like everything means something, everything is that way. And they're wearing their gi all the time and they have their <laughs> kung fu uniform when they go out to dinner. Like you have those dudes, like they're a little out there for me, right? But then you have the dudes who are like the opposite, where everything has to be about a fight. Like they're looking for a reason. Somebody touches me, I'm going to beat them down. And that they don't see the value until they can't physically do that anymore. Like we all get older. Like when you get 60, you really think you're going to be the baddest dude on the block? You 50, you really think that? That's not – it's a fantasy that they make up in their mind. And then as you get older, you start to have to – in order to continue to do this to justify doing it, you have to find better reasons or different reasons to train. And they can't all be about beating people up because eventually you're going to hit that roadblock 
usually in your like 30s, 40s, where you go, I just can't do that anymore. And this young kid comes in, high school wrestler, and he crushes you. And you're going, damn, I've been doing this for all these years. And you realize, like, look, your body's going to fall apart. So why are you doing this? And then you have those people who quit because they can't physically do the only reason that they could justify doing it. Or you find those people who move on become instructors because they want to help people. They become coaches. They, they reach out to try to better their education. They become public speakers. They do all these other things in the industry, but they don't do it for themselves anymore. They do it for everyone else. So those people get the opportunities to grow off of their mistakes or their lessons that they learned. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's a, you know, again, a great observation. And, you know, the middle of that, the core of that is humility. And I've told this story a few times, but not that it's a big story. It's just my, my martial arts journey. But I started in, started in Taekwondo, WTF, then went to Shotokan, then went back to ITF Taekwondo, a little bit of Aikido. And then, um, God, I think it was boxing, then Muay Thai, then Jiu Jitsu. So certainly when I got into the, the boxing, Muay Thai, Jiu Jitsu after winning national titles in Taekwondo, I had my ass handed to me day one in each of those classes. And I think that's a, another thing that I've seen. And I started martial arts back in, God, how old was I? Probably like 1990. So it was kind of pre UFC when that came around and after. Um, but, you know, having the humility to, to understand that, especially back then, our arts weren't perfect. Like there were mm -hmm. things that, you know, absorb what is useful. There were things that we could pull from each of those, depending on our body type, depending on our aggression level, you know, whatever it was, our, our makeup that would work for us. And, and that's what made mixed martial arts so powerful, you know, as, as we move on. But that constant humbling, which I didn't have a choice. Like I was having people just punching me in the face and choking me out. It was a pretty, you know, aggressive humbling, but it worked. So with your journey, what was your initial art? And then did you have any moments like that where you excelled in one specific art and then found yourself humbled by, by a new philosophy? Um, yeah, I definitely have had humbling moments. Um, and if any, as, as anybody else, I've humbled others too. <laughs> but like, you know, um, I started off in uh, freestyle karate, which is basically a glorified kickboxing is what I did. Um, and then from there, I went on to boxing. I did boxing, uh, 6-0 amateur boxer, 4-2 amateur kickboxer. Uh, let me just do the resume. It'll make it easier. So I'm a third-degree black belt in American freestyle karate. I'm a purple belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I'm a third-degree black belt in something called Lissa Jodo, which is a weapon system not many have heard of. It basically just means I'm good at nunchucks. Um, I uh, I was a 6-0 amateur boxer, 4-2 amateur kickboxer. I was on an international martial arts team called Team Full Circle. Um, Sage Northcutt was actually on the same team when I was on that team. Um, and we traveled internationally and did international martial arts tournaments, which varied from point fighting to boxing to kickboxing, depending on what was available. Um, and then, you know, I've been doing martial arts business consulting for 10 years and McDojo life now for about nine years. And I think my more humbling experience in all of that time was going from, uh, my, uh, one of my instructors that I taught with, um, we had, uh, the dude, like, I just put it this way. The dude was a dick. And I just couldn't work for him anymore. And a lot of what he was doing was rubbing off on me. And I could notice like how he was handling things. I was handling them the same way. And that just wasn't me. Like I, I'm, I'm not one to yell. I'm not one to, to try to look at the negatives and things. I, I just, I'm skeptical, but I'll, even in the videos that I post where I do breakdowns, I always end with what I think is also good about the people that I just got done talking about the issues. So um, I decided to leave that and I was like, made a decision. Then I was like, I want 10 black belts before I die right then made that decision. I was like, this is going to happen. And then I was like, well, what martial arts is going to take the longest? 
And I was like, it's going to be jujitsu. Brazilian jujitsu is going to take you the longest to get a black belt. Uh, all the research that I did, that was going to be the one. And I knew grappling like techniques. I knew rear naked choke, triangle choke, basics, but I had no clue what real Brazilian jiu-jitsu was. So as I was walking to one of my after-school program classes that I was teaching, another gentleman was walking past me, and he was in a Brazilian jiu-jitsu gi pants and a rash guard, and I was in my karate t-shirt and karate pants. And we just caught eyes, and we had a conversation. He said, hey, man, I'm opening up a martial arts gym in about four months. He goes, I'd love for you to swing by and just try it out. Perfect. Four months go by, on the dot, made that phone call, set up my class. I went in there, and he had already had like a classroom full of people because he had uh, segregated himself away from another gym. So he already had student base. And when I went in, I let him know straight up. I was like, look, I'm not here to do absolutely anything because I already own a karate school right now. He goes, all I want to do is I want to learn this art. I'm not going to go back and teach it. I'm not going to be disrespectful, and I'm not here to try to fight anybody. I just want to learn. And uh, he was cool, super cool dude. He was like, cool, not a problem whatsoever. He goes, come on in. Took the first class. At the last 30 minutes of the first class, we start rolling. And I was rolling with a white belt, and I, I submitted him like six, seven times just because I knew some basic techniques he didn't. Um, after that, he was like, well, why don't you roll with this blue belt here? He switched me out with a blue belt. And I actually tapped out and submitted the blue belt a few times. And in my head, my ego was like, like maybe I don't need to be here. Like maybe I need to find <laughs> Clearly another. Clearly I know everything already. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so – and it wasn't even that. It was just like, maybe this isn't the gym to help teach me more. Maybe I know more than them, but not, you know, in general, you know. So then he had me roll with another white belt. And what I didn't know was that white belt was a Ukrainian wrestling champion. And uh, so he already had like all of this experience in wrestling. And he just balled me up. Like he didn't submit me, but he balled me up. And it was like, real work like he was on top of me he was scrambling in the pocket he was like squishing me with top pressure and side control head and arm like he submitted me with head and arm to pressure um i just had never felt someone control me like that on the ground and then i was like this is more like it that's what i'm talking about then then i rolled with the instructor and the instructor looked bored he just looked so bored he was submitting me whenever he wanted however he wanted my arm his leg my leg whatever he was just submitting me with everything and i was like this is where i want to be like, this is really where I want to be. Um, and that was like a really humbling experience to get balled up. And I, it wasn't for malice. Like, none of those people were trying to hurt me, but they, they as well as me, were both trying to win. <laughs> and so they were doing what they could do, and I was doing what I could do to win. And to, to know that you're outclassed that much, like to where I knew that that instructor literally could have been playing solitaire on his phone. <laughs> you know, like he could have just been bored and still submitted me. I was like, I want to be like that. I want to know how to do that. And I still feel that way about my uh, jujitsu instructor. I've been with the same guy. So beautiful. Yeah. I think that constant humility, I think, is, is an important point. And what I love about um, jujitsu, and I found this from other gyms too, that, you know, whether jujitsu or not, they just have good, good, you know, uh, coaches and a good environment is you know, it becomes like a tribe. It becomes like a family, you know, and, and, I've had gyms where you're fighting, you know, in, in the jujitsu sessions and I've had gyms where you're just flowing. And if you want to, you know, step it up, you absolutely can. But it's a it's a fun experience. And there's truly that philosophy of you being grateful and vice versa for allowing each other to train and get better. And I, I love that. So when I come across martial arts teachers who are dicks, that's yeah. a huge red flag because, you know, all the most dangerous men and women I know on this planet that I, you know, personally have either had on here or know personally, um, you know, in person, they're some of the nicest human beings I know. 
So it's a it's a scary thing to take martial arts where, as you said, the, the principle is, you know, respect and humility and to come out of that as a giant turd <laughs> that, that's a that's a real hard left turn somewhere down you know down the road so yeah For i mean sure. that, i think it's yeah it's it's the great you know the great humbler is is a good martial arts school yeah for sure right well then speaking of that so in my journey i mean i i i have to say hand on heart i i was very fortunate enough to be in some great schools in each of those arts. And like I said, my own journey, my own self-realization is, all right, well, this, for example, I went to stunts. I became a stuntman. So the Taekwondo stuff was awesome for that. You know, whereas, you know, the Muay Thai Jiu-Jitsu, okay, in in, in more of a realistic situation, um, you know, these are the tools I'm probably going to use more. But I've been, you know, I've been following this since I was 14 or so. So I've obviously read, you know, all the magazines and been to some seminars and conferences. And we are exposed to some other weird and wonderful philosophies. Some which end up being very astute. You know, Jeet Kune Do and some of these things that were probably poo-pooed back in the day, we realize now are absolutely applicable. But then you have some of the the chi, the pressure point, you know, that kind of thing that we were in awe back in the day and then when it was pressure tested you know it appears like it wasn't as effective as these people were claiming when they were taking their monthly dues so walk me through when in your martial arts career you started kind of you know having these feeling towards some of these less than ethical schools and then when you decided to create mcdojo live well Creating McDojo Life didn't happen until like a like a while into my career. So, but uh, I remember my first experience with a like knowing for a fact that someone was a true fraud. Um, there was a guy named Jack Hogan, and Jack Hogan was like five four or something like that. He was just this tiny little man, and uh, I remember him and my instructor were fishing buddies. And my instructor would constantly give him shit about the art that he taught, like all the time. Was kind of picking at him and poking at him, but they were like ribbing. It was like ribbing from buddies, right? And so I never really understood that Lee, my instructor, was actually serious when he was poking at him until he actually brought him in one day. So I was a part of a program in high school called the DCT program, which was a program where if you had all of your credits done that was required for your senior graduation – that you would basically do the only other credits that you needed left, and then the other half of the day you could go to work. <laughs> and so I didn't. I worked at UPS at that time, so I would actually like. I talked to my instructor, and I was like, "Hey, is it okay if I like you just sign off on these paperwork and say that I worked here?" And he was like, "Sure." <laughs> so like he didn't care. And so like usually me and my best friend, we would just go back home and play video games until it was time for work. And then each week after classes were over, we just have him fill out the thing saying we were there because we did help out a lot. And so he was cool with it. Well, one of the days, um, I was like a holiday or something like that, and I, I wasn't going to work. And so I was like, you know what? I actually will kick off early, and I'll go train. So I went in, and I took a noon class, and I stayed around, and I helped out, and I was like cleaning the front area. And I remember Lee and Jack Hogan walking through the door, and they were like you know, kind of like going back and forth in some type of like a, a lighthearted argument. And then he looks at me and he goes, hey, uh, Rob, I want you to I want to introduce you to my friend. This is Jack Hogan, blah, blah, blah. I was like, oh, yeah, I've seen you before. And, uh, you know, then Jack, uh, he goes, Jack Hogan actually has Jack actually has something that he wants to show you. And I'm like, oh, OK. He goes, well, let's walk out onto the mat. So we walk out on the mat, bow on the mat. And uh, I go, well, what is it? And uh, Hogan goes to explain that he has this technique to where if he slaps you in the back of the neck in a specific way, it will knock you unconscious. 
And I was like, I don't want to do that. <laughs> and then like my, Lee being who he was, he convinced me to do it. And I'm an impressionable teenager. I would never do that now. But at the time I, I was down. And so Jack Hogan cups his hand in the shape of a C and he slaps the living dog shit out of the back of my neck. I mean, hard. It was bam. And I'm like, ow, <laughs> like that hurt. And then he's like looking at me, like really studying what my face is doing. And I was like, all right, well, that hurt, but I don't feel like I'm knocked out. I didn't feel like I would be knocked unconscious. And the only thing I really feel right now is like the fact that you slapped my neck. So I like feel the fingerprint imprints of my neck. And I and he was like, well, maybe I tried it wrong. Let me try it again. And before I could get the words of no out, he does it again. Wow. And slaps the dog shit out of me in the back of the neck. I was like, dude, stop. I was like, I told you no. Like, don't do that again. And the look on his face at that moment let me know everything I needed to know. That man truly in his heart believed that he was going to knock me out by slapping me in the back of the neck. And it was like a dumbfounding thing because I was a teenager then. And it didn't really dawn on me how full of crap that dude really was until after McDojo life. So forget all about this dude. My life moves on. I've met this dude maybe a handful of times my entire life, so he's not even a thought. Years later, I'm doing McDojo life, and I come across him knocking someone out with his mind. Like looking at the guy, waving his hand, and the dude falls over. And ironically enough, this is the truth. Ironically enough, that post of me when I posted him knocking someone out with his mind was the first post Joe Rogan actually ever shared of my page. And so it was like kind of like a neat little full circle kind of thing where, you know, this is a dude that I actually knew like he, Hogan Karate International, I think, is still a thing. And, uh, you know, me posting that up kind of helped elevate a little bit about what I'm doing and exposing fraud. So in a way, Jack Hogan as being as big of a fraud as he was helped expose a whole bunch of frauds just for his existence. Now, I'm, I'm not saying this deliberately to piss off people who go to churches like this, but you know, I see the same thing happening in some churches too. And it's, it's not to ridicule, but it, it's curious to me that there's such belief that a martial arts instructor, a preacher can wave their hands from a distance and then people magically just fall down so with your observation because you know again this isn't about oh well, you know well we that stuff's stupid and i'm sensible and you're not it's about obviously that there's an element of belief so with all these these videos that you studied what are you seeing as a common denominator that gets that person walking off the street that has no preconceptions to get to the point where they truly believe that these techniques are working on them well, I had, I had a pencil. I was going to write down some stuff, but I can't seem to find it. But uh, I did want to touch on something that you said, which I think is important for people to understand about mentality. And I think that it does actually perpetuate this is I, we, we touched on it earlier where people need to understand is you're being offended a knee jerk reaction or a choice. And if it's a knee jerk reaction to being offended, why? And so if, for instance, in this particular case, we're talking about like you use the comparison of churches, right? And obviously, clearly, you're not talking about all churches and all religion. You're talking about a very small denomination of those that take advantage of people that way. So if someone was offended by that, that offense is useless in this conversation. If they really, truly felt offended in a knee-jerk reaction, the next thing that they should be thinking is, what am I going to do about it? And they have two choices. 
They could be pissed off at you or pissed off about the people you're talking about. The one that would actually make a difference in this conversation is for them to be pissed off about the people who exist that actually do that. You know, and so I get that all the time and it's very frustrating. People are like, well, Sistema is not like that. It's like, why are you mad at me then? Like, clearly this dude is representing Sistema. He's saying he's a Sistema instructor. He's doing this. And you're saying, well, that's not real Sistema. Why are you mad at me then? Like, shouldn't you be mad about the guy who's actually the fraud? Like, just because he's representing Sistema and that's what he's presenting himself as. So I'm always a little baffled by that, but I think that's important. But um, in terms of like, how people fall into this. We did a documentary, as you know, about fakes, frauds, phonies, pedophiles, and con men in the martial arts industry. And during that time, we were able to interview two psychologists. One of one of the psychologists was actually uh, wrote a paper on martial arts cults, which was fascinating because it was the only one we could find. Um, and then the other one had studied cults as like something that they they kind of like were a major in, something they were really big into was studying cults. And so when we were talking to them, them and a few other people that we had spoken to all said the same thing unanimously, which was anybody could fall victim of a cult. It just takes the right time and place in your life and the right person to come along to be able to make that happen. Now, obviously, people that are out there are going to be like, well, that never happened to me. Well, another thing that we found interesting were the people who were most likely to fall victim of cults were the people who were the most likely to say they would never fall victim of a cult. <laughs> so like – because what happens is if you've already fallen victim or been taken advantage of in your life, then you're more likely to look for those signs because you're coming from a place of education. You're coming from a place of experience. You go, man, I know I'm susceptible to falling victim of a cult because this is what happened to me before. So I will watch those traits in my personality a little harder. The people who don't think that they're falling victim of a cult either already have or are going to fall victim of a cult in some time and just aren't aware yet. Like people in a cult never go, I'm definitely in a cult. No one does that, right? Why? Well, it's because they don't think that they can fall victim of the cult. And the next thing you know, they look back. And you see it a lot in today's society, by the way. You see a lot of people who are kicking family members out of their houses because they have opposing political views. And sometimes just about one subject. Like, I'm sorry if you're doing that. You were a part of a cult. Like, you might not think it, but you're a part of a much larger cult than you really think. You're being taken advantage of and manipulated. Um, because as human beings, we should have the opportunity and the ability to see someone's right to have an opposing point of view and it not destroy my feelings about everything else that's going on in that person's personality. You know, it's like, what have you done for me lately is too much of a, a commonality nowadays instead of what have you done? <laughs> you know, and I just I, I just kind of blows me away that people don't think they can fall victim. Another thing that helps people fall victim to cults is the well-educated and people who have money. People who are well-educated and have money are actually more likely to fall victim to cult mentality than people who are poor and not educated at all. Um, the people who are poor don't have the money to join a cult. <laughs> like They just don't. Like, And the people who are well-educated typically have a job in which they're put into a position where they might have a little bit more free time and expendable income to go pursue things that they would like to pursue. Like, Poor people don't go to yoga on Saturdays. <laughs> they can't afford it. You know, poor people don't typically go out and look for hobbies because they can't afford it. They're too busy working. And so they're less likely to be exposed to a guru or someone who's taking it or a cult leader. And so I'm always a little baffled when people don't think that it can happen to them. It's actually like, especially with like my page, like I see it all the time. We're talking thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people who have fallen victims of cults. 
And so it's almost laughable when people go, it never happened to me. Like, well, just because it hasn't doesn't mean that it's not a possibility. And it doesn't mean it will. It's just it'd be the equivalent of saying, well, I'd never get hit by a car. Like, well, just because it hasn't happened yet doesn't mean that you won't. Like if you're in a car, you could be hit by a car. If you're walking down the street, a drunk driver can hit you by a car. It's a possibility that that could happen. So what happens? Since it is a possibility, we look out for it more. <laughs> you know, we're like, oh, well, that car got a little too close. Maybe I need to be aware and kind of move myself around. You know, I don't just walk in the middle of the road because I'm aware that that's a possibility. Whereas somebody who never thinks they're going to get hit by a car ever might just walk out into the street without looking because they're not paying attention. And so it's the same thing with cults. See, that's a fascinating, you know, observation. And even with the, I forget the name of it now, but that that you mentioned yoga, the the hot yoga, one of those founders that ended up being a, you know, sex offender when he boiled down to it, you know. But so many yeah, people Bikram. were bought in. Yeah, Bikram. Thank you. All right. Well, just I want to get to obviously, you know, the the perspective of the instructor. But while we while we mentioned the the sex offender, I didn't realize the documentary also co- covered the the pedophiles in the martial arts. So. Talk to me about that, the frequency and, you know, the, the predatory kind of nature, because that's a very important thing. And I have to say, as a parent, that really kept me away from scouting because I got no problem, you know, a less problem with my child going to a soccer practice. But when you're going to take him away and be in a tent, you know, that that's something that, that worries me. And of course, there are great, great people in the scout organization, but that... That fear definitely, you know, penetrated a lot of, of parents' psyche. So tell me about that in the martial arts. You know, obviously, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm what you call a content creator. So I'm constantly trying to make content to put out there to the world. Um, and I started doing something a year ago called McDojo News. And uh, McDojo News is quite literally trying to find strange martial arts news stories to cover, whether it be good, bad or indifferent, to try to like talk about. So that way we have talking points that maybe we can all grow from from these other people's experiences. And one thing that has been a constant and it's never stopped. It will. I hopefully it will change is that every week, no matter what, when I go to look for a new McDojo story and I start looking through news articles and I start typing in things like karate instructor, martial arts instructor, a pedophile pops up every week. It never fails, never fails. Either they are being convicted or they're being charged or accused. And it's like they're they're constantly popping up everywhere. And there's a couple reasons for that. One, the martial arts industry is unregulated. There's no regulating body to the martial arts industry whatsoever. If someone off the street decided they wanted to be a 57th degree black belt in whatever they decided to be and made it up, they could open up a school. And as long as they're charismatic enough and business minded enough and they can make money, they can make a living off of it. Um, that no one's going to go in there. No one's going to stop them. No one's going to say that's a lie. And that was like one of the big reasons for starting McDojo Life is that so many of these people are unchecked. And they just do whatever they want. And like I, it's disgusting. You'll see somebody spend 30 years like there was a case in South Africa called CJA, which originally was Combat Jiu-Jitsu Academy. But it changed it. What it changed its name to Christian Jiu-Jitsu Academy and then finally closed. Good. I hope you choke on it as you do. But um, they were t- they lied. The dude lied about being a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt. He was belting people in jiu-jitsu. He had never gotten belted in jiu-jitsu a day in his life, and people didn't discover this until 30 years later. Like it took them 30 years of their life to realize they were taken advantage of by a con man. And like it was it was the saddest thing because these people respected and revered this man and thought he was like this bigger-than-life character. And while that might be true, he was a liar. He was lying to their faces. And uh, it's just sad. But – 
That kind of stuff happens all the time because it's unregulated. Now, here's a story about pedophilia, and there's there's way too many to count, but I know two um, if you just bear with me. Uh, there was a place in New York called Pizza Dojo, and it was quite literally a dojo slash pizzeria. <laughs> Go figure, in New York. And what this dude was doing was he was using it originally as a community outreach program for underprivileged children to give them something to do after school. So after school, these kids would come, and he would take care of them, and he would feed them and teach them martial arts classes. Well, he was slowly but surely convincing the parents of these kids who had no fathers or were single parents that they were better off with him. And one by one, he started convincing these parents to sign over custody rights to him. And those children started living inside Pizza Dojo, which was a big converted church. He was molesting all of those children. And by the time it was done, I think he had over 30-something cases against him of 30 different people who had been molested by this man. And he did it for a really long time under the disguise of martial arts. Because when you think martial arts, you think integrity and honor and respect and discipline. Because that's what we've been predisposed um, to, to understanding that that's what these things stand for. So a lot of people, when they see a martial arts instructor, they automatically slap those good labels on them and forget that they're just people and they're flawed and we're all flawed and we all have our flaws don't get me wrong i'm not better than anybody else but when it comes to that kind of thing there was so much trust given to this man early on that he was able to just run through all these parents and do it right there in the middle and all the signs were so obvious he was putting up all these flyers he was only doing underage events where anybody over the age of 18 wasn't even allowed in the building except for him. Like he was quite literally grooming an entire community to trust him and molest kids. Um, another one that's that drives me insane is there's a guy named David Arnbeck. And I say his name and I'll say it as much as I can because he still runs schools. David Arnbeck still runs three martial arts schools today. He still owns them. Now, whether or not he's the guy who's always there teaching doesn't matter to me. He still owns them. And so David Arnbeck molested a 15-year-old girl in his home. He pled guilty to molesting a 15-year-old girl in his home. And his guilty plea was that of he was too drunk to remember. And so there was some type of plea deal that he was able to take because of that. And then the plea deal allowed him not to be put on a sex offender registry. And so he has an entire website. If you go to davidarnbeck.com, it's all right there. And he even tells you that he took a plea deal. Now, he'll give you a different story about why. But – the truth is, is that he did plead guilty to molesting a 15-year-old girl. He did. And so if you did plead guilty, do you truly think it's the best idea to still be around children and a profession? Like, again, he could have just said, hey, these are adult classes only from here on out. He could do that. And then that would make a little bit more sense. Go do a job that only puts you around adults. Because even if, even if you did not do it, that perception is enough to be sickening. Like, and... On top of that, if you didn't do it, why did you make a plea deal that said you did? Like, wouldn't you fight? Because that can ruin your life. Like somebody or were you just trying to get a plea deal because you know you did it and this was the better sentence? And so but that dude's still in operation. Warriors Cove. Go look it up. David Arnbeck still runs it. And he like he was a black belt under Hicks and Gracie and Hicks and Gracie. It took him a little bit of time. But Hicks and Gracie excommunicated him from their organization. And then if you look on the website, it's him and Hicks and Gracie shaking hands and being right there all buddy-buddy. And it's like the problem is is that he's still saying – using Hicks and Gracie's name to boost his own job 
when Hicks and Gracie put out a letter saying he no longer wants to be associated with this guy. And so it's it's really sickening when you really start looking into it, what happens when there's no checks and balances to this. And people call me an asshole for the way that I do what I do. But what happens when there's not an asshole out there? What happens when there's not somebody pointing that finger and going, that's bullshit? Then it goes unchecked. It just continues and it gets worse. You think child molestation is as bad as it gets? I promise you it gets worse than that. Go check out what's going on in Indonesia. In Indonesia right now, Tanaga Dalam, which is called inner power, is what that is, is so rampant that it's taught to children at a very young age. I saw an eight-year-old kid slit his throat and kill himself because he believed that the Tanaga Dalam power would save him and make his body hard. And he slit his throat not knowing that the adults are lying and they're not using sharp blades. I saw an, a ten, uh, around the age of 10, I'm going to assume he's around the age of 10, run over by a truck in the middle of thousands of people were watching. And this dude was run over by a truck and killed because they believed this Tanaga Dalam inner power would save that kid's life. There were thousands of people there and no one once stopped to say this is a bad idea. Don't do that. And they all watched this kid die. I'm telling you, it gets gross. And it's what I have to deal with every day and it never ends. And what's even worse is when I go out there and I start showing these people these things, people think that they're staged. Like it's so ridiculous and outlandish. People go, oh, that's got to be staged. There's no way that people really believe this. I promise you they do. And I promise you what you see on the page is a drop in the bucket to what I have to actually see. Because if I actually posted all the things that I get sent, it would make people have nightmares until the day they die. Like I saw a woman get gang raped by a group of seven martial arts um, kids. They were like between the ages of 15 to the ages of 20. And they all raped this girl right on camera and they shared it around for their buddies to see. And it's like we're like if people don't understand that there's a lot of power in the martial arts and it can go in a very gross, very sick way real quick. And if it's not checked in some possible way, what you're basically doing is you're making glorified criminals. You're giving them an opportunity to take advantage of kids, to get people hurt, to kill people. There was a video of a dude who had a mental handicap who walked in off the street and challenged a martial arts instructor in his gym. And then he put his mat enforcer on him and they literally killed that man. It's on camera. Like that was a super famous viral video. They stepped on that man's head until he was bleeding from the skull and dragged him out the back door. They murdered that man inside that martial arts gym. And then there are people who have the balls to say that mad enforcers are a good thing. Yeah, okay. Well, mad enforcers are good for your ego. Mad enforcers make you feel good about yourself, but they're not good for this industry. Like if someone does some shit you don't like, send them out of your gym. It's that simple. Be a professional. You know, we don't have to beat everyone up because we don't agree on things. And if somebody challenges you in your school, there's a time place for everything. Cool. Are you that offended? Set up a time and a place for a ring, the ring, the tournament, the cage. There's a reason we have them. That's the time for those things. But um, I know I went on a little rant, but I get kind of heated about that shit. And like, I just really wish more people were aware of how bad it really does get. Maybe they'd ignore it less. Yeah, well, I want to say thank you. That was, you know, very transparent, very uncomfortable for the the absolute right reasons. But, you know, you've educated me because I already enjoy what you put out there just on, you know, being a martial artist, seeing some of these, you know, these people taking money for things that, as you said, were were definitely deviating into the the world of fantasy. 
But then when you pull the, the curtain back and you show us, you know, the real dangers of the unethical practices of some schools, that's something that everyone needs to hear. And the fact that it's not checked. I mean, think, take jujitsu, for example. Just the fact that you can have someone teaching someone to choke your child in a dojo who has never actually been taught. And the potential dangers of just that in itself is terrifying. But then you add in deviant behavior and it's, you know, absolutely horrendous. So thank you so much for kind of educating me and realizing the scope of what you're actually trying to do. Now, one more area before we talk about the documentary. Um, You know, that's that's still... You know, the worst sliver or, you know, slice of, of these, um, unethical practices that we're seeing. It appears to, to my eyes that a lot of it is driven more, you know, from a kind of financial business, um, lens and, you know, these people that, that either are teaching kind of fraudulent martial arts or, as you said, aren't qualified to teach the ones they, they claim to. Um, you know, they're just taking money from people. Even if they're not harming people, if they're not preying on kids, they're still taking money from people and teaching them things that are probably going to get them killed when they actually try it in the streets. So what are some of the common denominators you're seeing behind these instructors, especially the ones that are teaching these bizarre, you know, no-touch arts and, and some of these ones that, that clearly appear, unless you are a superhero, to not work in the real world? It depends. So the... For instance, let's look at somebody like a George Dillman. So George Dillman is a notorious con man in the martial arts industry, right? He truly has this entire system that has been built around touch somebody in this particular point and that will knock them unconscious by just touching them or knocking them out with his his chi, you know, and like the dudes, the dude's a caricature of like everyone who's ever done this, like which is kind of funny because he's already kind of cartoony in a way. But at one time, this dude actually was a competitor. Like he competed in actual like sparring and fighting people and and back in the heyday of karate. So like this dude was like kind of legit. He he quite literally bought Muhammad Ali's gym from Muhammad Ali because they actually were friends. You know, like they're they're I don't he says that he was friends with Bruce Lee. That I think is bullshit. But when it comes to like him, like with Muhammad Ali, there's actually like a pretty good track record of Muhammad Ali saying things about George and that that they seem to have like a buddy-buddy relationship. Now, how deep that goes, obviously, I don't know, but it seemed like they were actually training buddies. So in that case, I consider that what they call Steven Seagal, what I call Steven Seagal syndrome, (laughs) which is a person who started off legitimate. Like Steven Seagal actually owned an Aikido school. He actually taught Aikido. That was his primary source of income. But then over a long period of time, when success really started to hit for Dillman, and Seagal, I think that they were around a lot of yes men. And I think they were around a lot of people who wanted to leech off of their success. So if you have good people around you, every once in a while, they'll tell you, no, that's a bad idea. That's stupid. Don't do that. Those are actually good people to have in your life because they'll actually help you check you. When you don't have those people, I think you start to get that ego and they feed it and they don't understand that what they're really creating is a monster. And so when George Dillman all of a sudden starts coming around and saying, well, I could do this, now they have to make a decision because a cult has just been created. Cognitive dissonance is the word. Um, So do they, A, decide, well, I've spent the last 20 years of my life studying under this man, and now he's a crazy person, so I need to leave. But if I leave, I'm ostracized from my job because they might be instructors under him in their organization. I no longer can be around my friends who I've built around the last 20 years. I might be excommunicated from learning this martial art that I love so much and lose their entire life 
or do they just say, okay, and keep going? That's the decision. And like, it is that heavy. It's like, you can lose everything by going against this person. So do you? (laughs) And we don't know what we would do because most of us don't really get put in that position too often. Right. And if you really want to compare it to something, compare it to a job you really need and a boss you really don't like, you know, like, think about it. You're perpetuating it by not saying, hey, fuck you. (laughs) Like you could do that and you could lose your job and you could no longer be able to pay your bills and all that. Or you can just go, yes, sir, and then move on with life. And that's kind of the equivalent as close as I can get it to explaining how a cult would operate. So like with, with those particular people, their motivation and how they got into it would be much more different than, let's say, somebody who runs like a Vibravision. So Vibravision quite literally tells people that they can cure blindness. Like that's not a lie. Like they say that you can open up a book as a blind person and read the book without Braille. They say that they can make people who are blind drive cars. Like that's a very dangerous precedence to tell people who are blind that they can drive a car on the road. You're going to kill someone because you can't see, stupid. Like, I'm sorry, there's no cure for blindness. We wish there was, but there isn't. And there are tricks that can help blind people get through the day, but you can't drive a car. Sorry, it's it's, it's done. That's like me saying I'm going to run a marathon. I got no legs. I can walk a marathon on my hands, but I'm never going to be able to run because I got no legs. And so the idea and the thought process behind these people are all different, and they're all for different motivations. Some for money, some for power, and some are quite literally actually crazy people. (laughs) Like they've lost it, and that is for some reason people follow them. (laughs) You know, It's it's kind of like – here's an example of somebody who probably does it more for the money and the fame is somebody like a Frank Dukes. Right. Frank Dukes quite clearly lied. The Kumite doesn't exist. It's not a real thing. He didn't go off and like, you know, go rescue orphan children on the high seas and trade the magical mystic sword from the Kumite that he won to save these children's lives. You know, no, that never happened. You know, like people even reached in to find his military records and he says they're uh, they were classified. So you'll never get it like even people higher up say, no, that's not true because I'd see that it was classified. Like I might not be able to read it, but I can see it. It's right there and they don't exist. And so, you know, that kind of person is probably a little bit more on the side of, you know, I needed this for the fame. And they're like, blood sports real. Like, no, it's not. You, you made it up. It's, it's amusing. It's a great movie, but it's, it's a lie. So I think that they all have their own individual reasons for going down the path that they do. Absolutely. Yeah. You just shot my childhood. Okay, USA. <laughs> Wait till you find out about Santa Claus. Ah, oh, shit. <laughs> you mean he's not a black belt? <laughs> I um, think Nick's a big dude, man. I bet you he'd probably yoke some people up. I bet you he's a judo guy. Always walking around with the red and white gi. Did you see the uh, Legends of the Guardians, I think it was called? And he was this big jack dude in that cartoon with tattoos. He's a Russian dude. Yeah, I wouldn't get in the cage with him. Not that Santa. <laughs> Well, it's been working out. <laughs> well, one more, one more area. I want to, one more question after this. Um, and then we'll, we'll get to the documentary. But, um, obviously we're listening about all these, the, you know, the, these less than favorable schools. So what are some of the, you know, the, what is the advice when people are looking for a school in their area to find not only a good fit for them, but also, you know, to kind of background check and make sure they are ethical and from a good lineage? Well, As we discussed earlier, there is no regulating body to the martial arts industry. What I would hope that martial arts studios start to do as a standard practice 
is CPR certification for everybody who was there and federal and local background checks. For the United States, we have federal and local. I'm not sure what it is overseas. But I would think that if you just provide those two things right off the bat and that becomes the norm for people, then I think we'd eliminate like probably 75% of the real issues that we have. Because like let someone really knowing like how to protect somebody and help somebody in a situation where they could be severely hurt. I think that you're in a physical job. You should have a CPR certification. You should know how to revive somebody who might be in distress or look for things and putting health as priority one above anything else. Making sure your students are safe. Uh, if you're not doing that, why are you doing this? Like people are trusting you. They're, they're trusting that you know what you're doing. And part of that is making sure that they're safe. If somebody passes out, do you know what to do? Are you going to let them die? You know, if somebody has like a, you know, low blood sugar, do you know what to do? Do you have like a defib inside your studio? You probably should. You know, do you have an EpiPen ready to go? Do you have a first aid kit ready to go? Safety should be paramount first. Then after that, we should start looking on the background checks. If you hire somebody on, again, there's no regulating body to this. So you might actually hire a pedophile. You might actually hire these people. And if you don't actually do your due diligence to look into who these people are, what their track records might be, for instance, they might not necessarily have been convicted of pedophilia, but you might see a, a, a track record of other sexual abuse allegations or sexual abuse that they've gone to court for. That'll show up in their background check. And so you can say, ah, do I really want to get involved with this person who's been accused like 15 times of this thing? It's like, well, how true could it be? You know, plus um, my first death threat, real death threat was in London. I was I was brought out there to do a martial arts seminar. Previous to that, I had already done McDojo Life for quite a while. I was during the time that I was only on Facebook. I had called out an instructor for being a pedophile. It was facts. This was 100 percent true. There was record of it. I could show proof of everything. And so I did. And the magic of having such a good following is they went immediately after that dude and like lighting up every comment, letting people know that he was a pedophile. His his reviews on Google went from five stars to one. Um, everybody was leaving like, these reviews about the truth. And he immediately closed down the school and I didn't hear a thing until uh, like a year later. A year later, I, someone says, hey, man, this guy kind of looks familiar. Isn't this the dude that you called out for being a pedophile? And it was the same guy. He actually moved from the United States. He moved over to London. When he moved over to London, he opened up another school under a different name and was pretending to be someone else. And he was he was a convicted he was a convicted pedophile here. And so somehow he was getting away with it. And so I called him out. And that school, again, had the same result, called it out. Of course, people are really big about protecting children. It gets shut down pretty quick. So I'm in London for that seminar. And then I get a text message or a message on my Instagram. And it was from a page that had just been created. I could tell no profile picture, zeros across the board, no followers, no post, didn't follow anybody. And then it just said what I was wearing. And so I was in this Taekwondo tournament in London in this room full of thousands of people. And they they wrote a message of just what I was wearing. And I was like, well, that's creepy. So I just wrote them a message back. I was like, hey, man, you just come over and talk to me. You know, we can chit chat about whatever. It doesn't really matter. And then the person started to let me know that that school in London that I had gotten shut down, I'm assuming it was directly because of me. But if it wasn't, I don't give a shit. I'm glad they're closed. Uh, but he started accusing me of being the reason that it got shut down. 
and then saying that when I got out of that facility, he was going to shoot me. Now, we're in London, so the odds of that are really low, right? Really low. But it's not impossible. And clearly, this dude had a grudge. He was correct about that school, and I was going after that school, and he knew a lot of details about that school. But what was even weirder was the fact that this dude knew where I was in this crowd of thousands of people, but I didn't know where he was. And so that's as as silly as the threat was, it's still a threat. And even if he didn't shoot me, he still could have stabbed me. He still could have hit me with his car. He still could have done a billion things. I would have never known who it was. So I go down and I talk to the police and I let the police know what was happening. And they let me know, well, there's not much we could do. But what we can do is we can escort you to your car whenever we're done. And ever since that moment, I started really regulating myself uh, when it comes to like putting out too much information and stuff like that. Because, you know, there are people who are kind of protective of their instructors like that some of which do have mental illness and things like that. And some work for those people. And now because that person messed up, this the, the, the coach might not have messed up, but the owner might have messed up. And then now the coach loses his job. And so they take that seriously and they take that to heart and they think that you're the reason, not thinking, oh, well, it was actually the, the owner's fault. They start taking it out on somebody like me and they go, well, it's your fault. It's you're the reason why. And um, I think, again, you're less likely to have a whole bunch of that crazy <laughs> if you did a background check. Like people who are criminals have criminal histories. You know, they don't just go, you know, I'm 45. Fuck it. Let's start being a criminal. It usually doesn't happen that way. You know, and so I think that that would help regulate those type of things a little better. Um, now, for parents, research is a little strange. Um, it's very convoluted. Every martial arts style has a different lineage. Every lineage could mean something to different people. Um, you know, every martial art has different lingo. Every martial art has, has different rules. Like, do I bow on the mat? Do I not bow on the mat? Do I bow at the door? Do I not bow on the door? Are you sensei, sifu, professor, coach? I don't know. Um, and you don't learn about that until you walk in for the first day. And the only person that you really are getting that information from is the person in charge. <laughs> so like they can still lie to you. So at the end of the day, what you really should be looking for is one, take every trial class that you can find out what your goals are and take all the trial classes. Once you're done with that, those trial classes, narrow it down to a couple schools that will help you reach your or your child's individual goals and show up. If you're a parent, be there always. Like if there's a parent's night out, like you need to be there. <laughs> like, I'm sorry, but if it's only for a few hours and you know there's going to be other chaperones, that's a much different thing, right? But if you know it's only this one person going to be in that building and it's an overnight sleepover, maybe that's not the best. You know, maybe you chaperone. Be there for your child. Be there to make sure that they're getting the best education they can because there's certain things you can't apologize for. And you can't apologize for not being there no matter in what capacity. And if you're not there for your child and you put them in a place with a stranger that you haven't done your due diligence, it's just as much your fault. Like it's just as much your fault if you didn't find out about this person's history, you know, so I definitely say be there. And if you're going to do it for yourself, be present. If you're going to show up, show up, work <laughs> like don't expect to be a martial arts master in like a week because you took one class on a seminar whim. And then you're like, well, now I know how to kill everyone with my hands. Like, I'm sorry, homie, you don't. <laughs> so but there's it get, I guess it gets complicated. But at the end of the day, do your due diligence and care. Beautiful. Yeah, there's, there's so, so much great information there. I agree 100% with the CPR, AED, you know, first aid element. I think we have one in our um, CrossFit gym now and we had a save. I wasn't there that day, but we had, I think it was like 
two nurses at least that happen to be there working out at the same time and our member now is completely you know rehabilitated and he works out again so huge huge life-saving moment but yeah i mean you think about especially when you're when you're kicking and punching you know head strikes and chokes and i mean yeah it makes perfect sense and the background check any any organization you're going to let be with your child i think should automatically be able to give you a background check you know I mean, yeah, from, not, from a top down yeah. Just like, here you go. We already have one for everybody. We're all clean. Backgrounds, local and federal. Exactly. Well, everyone listening, nurses, doctors, medics, firefighters, police officers, we always have to, you know. So if we're held to that standard, why would you not to someone that you're going to hand your child to for several hours at a time? Brilliant. All right. Well, one one kind of like little tangent before we get to the to film. I read an uh, interview a few years ago now, I think it's like three years ago, and you talked about hoping one day, you know, McDojo life would be sustaining for you. And the reason I say that is because I think it's great to see people that are doing good in the world that are able to focus on that, don't have to have a side gig to support themselves. Did you, Were you able to get to that point? I have, actually. And funny enough, it's I've been able to do it now for about almost three years. So maybe it wasn't too much longer after that. <laughs> Perfect. Um, but yeah, it's... You find you find through a lot of stumbling and mistakes through the social media world how to make income. And so I just started figuring it out. And uh, hopefully we can continue to grow. I actually have plans to launch another brand as well. Beautiful. Well, congratulations on that. All right. Well, then let's talk about the documentary. So where are you at right now to give me an overview of it? And then how can people help actually get it out onto the screens? Uh, well, it took us three years to make, <laughs> so, uh, COVID didn't help. We had to crowdfund, which people don't understand takes a long time to develop like a crowdfunding plan. Um, and then after we, I think it was six months of crowdfunding. Then after that, we went directly into planning filming, which we weren't all able to be free for another six months. Oh, the month before we were supposed to start filming COVID hit, uh, like the lockdowns. And so we were like, okay, well, we need to push it back. So we had to push it out another year. And then it took us three months straight of filming. So we're already done filming and now we're in distribution and we, we have like something, one that's never been done before. So I'm, I'm proud to say that we were the first people to ever do a documentary about frauds in the martial arts industry. Like not one fraud, not like one person, right? But to talk about the entire issue as a whole, it's never been done. We have enough footage right now for a docu-series. So that's what we're hoping to do. Because we don't want to chop up all this great footage into like this two-hour time span and miss all this great stuff that we filmed. We were able to interview some of the biggest frauds in the in the martial arts world. Uh, we interviewed them. <laughs> so one dude said that he knows the death touch for sure. One dude said that he could dodge bullets. One dude, um, we uh, I won't I can't give their names because the movie's not out yet. So we don't we want to get in trouble when the movie comes out, not before. Um, <laughs> We were able to get one of these guys to come in and teach a pressure point knockout seminar for us. And I filled the classroom full of 10 people who all had trained. <laughs> well, nine people who trained from different disciplines and one dude who had never trained a day in his life. And we actually have a pretty funny story from that if you want to hear it. Yeah, please. Um, well, this dude comes in. I told everybody for the first hour to go with it. Whatever he teaches, go with it. Ooh, ah, e. And we were all hamming it up. Like the pressure point stuff doesn't work. It doesn't hurt. Um, and especially if you've ever really trained, like, no, it doesn't hurt. It doesn't bother me. Like, no. And so for the first hour we were going with it. Well, for the second hour, I told everybody, be yourself. I didn't tell anybody to attack or assault or degrade. I just said, be yourself. If you have questions, ask them. If it doesn't work, don't pretend be you. 
And uh, man, after that hour, as soon as that hour hit this for the second hour of the seminar, hands were just shooting up like everybody had questions because this dude's obviously teaching nonsense. And somebody in the crowd said, hey, how do I defend against the knife? And the instructor's eyes light up. Oh, and he goes over to his bag and he pulls out a rubber training knife and he comes back over to the front of the room and he says, all right, guys, what type of attack are we talking here? And someone said the upward prison shank, right? Like the stab to the gut. And he goes, OK. And so he hands the knife over to our cameraman, who in the group was the only guy who had never trained a day in his life. He wasn't aware of that, but it also just made this so much funnier. And he said, go ahead and stab me that way. And our cameraman proceeds to stab him like 18 times, <laughs> like actually get him 18 times. And he's trying this weird downward X block and it's just not working. So somebody in the crowd a jiu-jitsu guy goes, well, what, wouldn't this work a little better? And he grabs the guy's wrist with a two-on-one grip. And our guy tries to stab him and can't do it. And so obviously clearly more effective. So the guy who's teaching the class looks at him and goes, ah, oh, no, that's it's ridiculous. That's never going to work. He goes, the reason that's not going to work is because I'm not going to stay there. He goes, what do you do now that you have the guy's arm? And then our guy's like messing around. In my head, I'm going, well, not get stabbed. Isn't that the point? Control the knife. (laughs) What do I care? Like, this is step one. Don't get stabbed. And then step two will come, right? And then so he goes, what I would do is I'm not grabbing his wrist because I want to get close. So he bum rushes our cameraman and grabs him around the waist. But he doesn't actually grab the knife on. (laughs) So he stabs him more. (laughs) He's talking to our crowd. And he's going, as you can clearly see, I have complete control of the situation. Well, our camera guy, being a genius at that moment, doesn't actually touch him with the knife. He's pretending to stab him in the back while he's giving his speech. And we put a counter to it. Total, this guy got stabbed 48 times (laughs) during that (laughs) speech. And somebody being sarcastic, and this was like the icing on the cake that takes it from funny to scary, is someone in the crowd says, Hey, what happens if he stabs you in the back? (laughs) Super sarcastic, right? Because he's clearly being stabbed in the back. And the guy goes, well, if you don't see the blood, it's not that bad. Like, that was his answer to that situation. Oh, my God. This guy gets paid to go and teach people self-defense. And that was his answer about getting stabbed. That's crazy. It's it's funny because it reminds me of, I'm sure, I'm sure that you posted this, but I think it went everywhere. But it was these two kind of Indonesian looking guys. And I'm, I'm, you know, I hope it's tongue in cheek, but like he was coming to him and this other guy was smacking him with a spatula and all this stuff. But they were, (laughs) they were mimicking some of this nice stuff that they see on, on the internet. Yeah, that one was a joke, but unfortunately, it's hard for people to tell nowadays. Because <laughs> it so is. Much, it's like, are they joking? Is it real? Like, unfortunately, most of it's real. Yeah, I just posted as well. I don't know if it was your one or not, but I shared it. It was the the guy who, um, you know, they show the clip of a guy kneeling and there's a gun held to his head and he suddenly grabs it and reverses it on him. And then... Uh, then there's these two Asian guys doing the same thing. And as he goes to grab it, he just pulls the gun back and he just smacks him on the head with his hand a couple of times. Oh, man, there's so many of them. Yeah. You know, I started doing these McDojo breakdowns so that way I can kind of explain who these people are and like that they are real people and they're not joking. Um, and there's there's just a ton and that are still in operation. And all I can do is just share the information and people can make their own decisions. Uh, because if I put something out there with the intent of destroying their business, they can actually sue me. Um, and so, but if I put it out there, it's just like, this is the information you can do with it, what you want. Then as long as it's truthful, then or clearly an opinion, then I, uh, I don't get in trouble. So it's a fine line. I walk. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for what you've done. I mean, seriously, it, it's it's very important, and, and the importance has has definitely been magnified through this conversation because I realize the depths of what you're trying to do. Um, you know, so keeping the good schools open and, and getting rid of the bad schools only benefits everyone. It, it, it brings more students to the people that should be teaching. And then obviously it allows people that they're going to invest hours and hours and hours of their time and all this money that their children or themselves can walk in the community feeling, you know, better prepared. Versus, as we've seen, some of those tongue-in-cheek ones where, you know, the gun, the next thing they go to do the move, and then there's that heaven thing in behind them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's that, great. Yeah, but it's a sad reality. And if you watch uh, people like Byron Rogers, who I had on, you know, he posts some some of the awful, you know, true life gun knife attacks, and there's nothing funny about it at all. You know, and, and God forbid any of those, you know, so-called moves would absolutely result in you bleeding to death in the middle of a street. Hmm. So scary stuff, man. And, you know, like we deal with so many subjects that are really serious that I try to keep it as lighthearted as I can. But sometimes you just can't. Like sometimes there's just nothing funny about something. And, you know, you can't help but be serious. But most of the time I try to keep it lighthearted because it's just so ridiculous. And people seem to respond better to comedy. Like when you when you say something serious in a joking way, people are kind of tend to gravitate towards listening to you a little bit more because at least it's also entertaining (laughs) you know it's like do i really want to sit here and listen to this dude be offended for like three hours or is it if you toss in a joke every once in a while will that actually keep their attention long enough to listen to the point and so that seems to work best on the page absolutely and then what's what's great about podcasts the long form like we've done today almost you know over an hour and a half now you know it really allows you to tell tell the story and we talk about the funny stuff and you know your experience and then now some of these you know dark dark sides of of uh, the martial arts that you and I have both you know enjoyed our our life you know there's some people that have have had very different experiences so I wanted to do some closing questions. Before we do, where can people find the documentary um, and then how can they contribute to the distribution side? Well, currently we are in, like you said, we are in distribution. So there's really nothing they can do unless they just know somebody at Netflix or Hulu or, you know, Amazon Prime. So unless you actually know you can get one of those meetings, um, we're just kind of in the process of finishing our pitch deck. So our pitch deck and our trailer should be our pitch deck will definitely be done by next week. But our trailer, which we are on version two, and we'll probably do like maybe three or four different versions. Uh, so they'll just have to wait for that. But really, at the end of the day, if people want to contribute, they can go to McDojo Life DOC. That's McDojo Life Doc um, on Instagram. And it's a paid page to get behind the scenes access of stuff that we've already filmed. Uh, some behind the scenes access of conversations that we've already had. Some footage that might make the movie. Some things that might not. Um, and then all that's there. And then, of course... As we hit distribution, the first people who will know about it are the people on that page. Um, so they'll have the first updates of everything. If they want to keep up with McDojo Life in general, they can just go type in McDojo Life into any most every social media and we'll pop up. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Beautiful. All right. Well, the first of the closing questions, is there a book that you love to recommend that can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated? I do. <laughs> I actually, I'll go with the. I have like a billion books I recommend, but since we're talking about fake martial arts, um, we actually interviewed this guy for our documentary, and it's a book by a guy named Lewis Martin, and the book is entitled The True Believers, and the the quote underneath it says, a powerful and engaging testimony to the social mechanics of a martial arts cult, and so this is a biography, autobiography, about a guy who was in a martial arts cult, 
and all of the things that, excuse me, all the things that happened to him, um, that kind of allowed him to continue to fall into the cult, be an instructor for the cult. Um, you know, a, one person burned his car for the insurance money to be able to pay, to be able to continue to go to this cult. One person was told by the cult, the group, that they needed to leave the guy's wife. The guy needed to leave his wife and his six-month-old baby because they were hindering his ability to train martial arts. Um, you know, uh, there were rape. Uh, there were instances of rape and molestation that were happening inside the cult. Um, it was it's pretty bad. Um, and, but I would definitely suggest that if you really want to learn about martial arts cults, this is probably one of the better books I've read about it because it gives you the insight to that person's mind from before they started the cult, how they got into it, and what made them stay, and how they got out. Beautiful. I've never had that one recommended, so thank you. All right, yeah, definitely so, check it out. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, what about a movie and or documentary that you love? There, uh, like, we'll just stick with this subject because I just love movies and documentaries. If you really want to watch a tag team of like movie and documentary back to back, we already talked about it, but watch Bloodsport. And then afterwards, watch a movie called Put Up Your Dukes, spelled D-U-X. And the documentary is actually free. You can find it, find it on YouTube. Um, but the, the movie is about Frank Dukes' life, which is a complete lie. And then the documentary, Put Up Your Dukes, is about all of the, like, basically the fallacies and the fantasies and what happened to Frank Dukes. Because some of that documentary does a really good job of kind of letting you see his point of view. But it also kind of lets you know about a little bit more of the fantasy that he made up. And I think they did a really good job of playing both sides to help people understand, like, you know, he kind of did get taken advantage of in a way. But at the same time, he was doing the same thing to people. And you'll learn about all the lawsuits that happened because of the movie Bloodsport, his vendetta with Jean-Claude Van Damme, like all of his military history that he claims to have had and all this stuff. It's it's pretty cool. Watch Bloodsport. Then afterwards, watch Put Up Your Dukes. And then you'll have like an entire day of just wondering what happened to your childhood. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. All right, thank you. Some some great titles coming up. Next question, is there a person you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? Yeah, dude, I have a buddy, and I think he does such an amazing job. And he may or may not have already been on your show before, but Mike the Cop is a homie. And I love, love what he does because he takes – a very middle ground approach to understanding law enforcement altercations that typically only get like 15 seconds of body cam footage that gets put out and gets misinterpreted or gets destroyed by the media. And he actually shows everything. He shows police reports. He talks about he'll show the entire body cam footage and he breaks down his thought process. He's not like um, he's not one of those dudes that doesn't think that cops can do any wrong. Like he actually does speak like, hey, I think this police officer made a mistake here. This was all his fault. Or he'll say, hey, this is misinterpreted. Mike the Cop is probably one of the best to ever do it. I love watching his stuff. Beautiful. All right. Thank you so much. All right. The last question then before we make sure people know where to find you. What do you do to decompress when you're not pulling back the curtain on fraudulent martial arts? That doesn't exist. <laughs> um, at the end of the day, man, like I, I pretty much work like 15 hours a day doing this job. Uh, I wish that was an exaggeration, but it's not. And if I'm not home, I'm usually traveling for work for this job, um, which I never expected. Like, 
what first of all, I never thought that I was important. <laughs> like I'm just some dude that likes martial arts and I say that's bullshit. <laughs> and I guess I'm really good at saying that's bullshit, so people want to talk about it. <laughs> but at the end of the day, man, like I'm always working and I'm always not. Like even this conversation doesn't feel like work. It feels like we're just having a conversation about martial arts. I would be doing this for free anyway. You know, so like this is like this is very decompressing and fun for me. But like, dude, I smoke weed like all the time. So like I'm not I don't do it during the day. But at night, if I'm about to go to bed or like really unwind is smoke weed and watch like Mystery Science Theater 3000 or something. And I just pass out and <laughs> wake up, do it again. Brilliant. I don't think I've had smoke weed specifically as a decompressor in, in this interview, which is which is but so many people have been on here, you know, do so um, fantastic. And I can relate to that, too, because. You know, you, you see some people in, in the entrepreneurial space like, oh, it's a grind and, you know, 20 hours a day and all this bullshit. But I think that what's missing is if you find something that you really enjoy and I transitioned from the fire service because I was tired of seeing my brothers and sisters dying. It's a simple core for what I do. You know, that that driving fire doesn't feel like work. And, I you know, I, I'm having to actually pull back on the reins a little bit now because I think I've done too much the last few weeks. But, um, you know, it you're thinking about it when you wake up and you're thinking about it before you go to bed, but it's not, you know, in a, in a work grind type way. It's just this exciting genesis of new ideas and guests and topics and all that kind of thing. So I can relate a hundred percent. Yeah, dude, it's, it's, it's not work. like I, there are definitely people out there who I think do overwork themselves. And I know for a fact, I'm a workaholic, but I mean, let's just be serious. Like there are worse jobs that I could have, <laughs> you know, like I already had those jobs and they sucked and I'm not going back. <laughs> But, you know, like when it comes to this job, I mean, it's you. I am working 15 hours a day. But at the same time, it's like is really sitting on my couch like at the end of the day. And I handle like two hours worth of DMs to where I'm answering people's messages and I'm watching TV while I do it. Like, come on, that's not I mean, it's work because that is a part of my job is to make sure I connect with the people who are reaching out to me. But is that really work work? <laughs> like it doesn't feel like it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, what's important for you, what you're doing, what's important for what most people listening to this do, you know, whether in the medical, military, first responder, you know, the, 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 the focus is to make the world better. And I think that's what makes you unique versus some of the people we see on social media who is, you know, really more of a narcissistic element is, you know, your work is, is, making the world better you know you're educating people you're you're um you know i said pulling the bar the curtain back on on some people that shouldn't be in martial arts schools and you're educating a lot of people on how to find a good one so you know i think it's a, it's a very important um platform that you've created i'm trying and i appreciate that beautiful well then just as a closing thing then you mentioned about mcdojo life and googling anywhere else online people can find more about you or is that pretty much the main place Man, I'll tell you right now, like one thing I've been wanting to do is uh, I, like I'm looking to grow and expand and I want to be able to do more and help more people. But right now we're focusing a lot more on our YouTube channel and original content. So we have about 46,000 followers on there right now. And we really my goal is to try to get to 100,000 by the end of the year. Um, when I'm consistent, <laughs> then it feels like it's a it's a possibility. But the algorithm is so strange that like sometimes you'll put out a video and it'll hit and you'll be like, yeah, that's awesome. And then sometimes you'll put out a video that you put all this time and effort and work into. But because you didn't put the right hashtag or post at the exact right time, no one sees it. So really, at the end of the day, anybody who really wants to help us out, just start sharing our YouTube stuff or go subscribe or become a member there. You know, we really want to be able to grow and help more people. Yeah, beautiful. I think what's what's. I've observed because I had I made a film again to try and 
put some some information out there um, on mental health and PTSD, and it you know went viral if that's the right term, like one one point six million views, which I guess is I'd good. Say so. But then you know other ones I put out there, which also have good content, same thing. But I think what's hindering YouTube is. I find Facebook to be almost a complete waste of time now. And that's where you used to share a lot of the YouTube. You can't share that on Instagram, really. So I think that, you know, for me as a, as a very white belt social media user, the inability to, to share YouTube on some platforms, you know, makes it harder to, to make those films go viral these days. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a trick, man. I, I do like it. It sucks. Like I'm almost at four hundred thousand followers on Instagram. Like, why can't I have that on YouTube? <laughs> like, <laughs> if I had that on YouTube, this channel would be much different. I promise you. Like this background here, you can. Pro- I can guarantee you that that wouldn't be there. Like I would have a building. Like, like all the Skype interviews that I do with like some of these like more famous martial artists and coaches, I'd just be there. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. We would just have a conversation in a chair. I'd fly him out or something. You know, like real up up the production value. Like. People want me all the time. Why don't you go to talk to these guys in person? Why don't you go confront them? Well, maybe because that dude's in Indonesia and it cost me two grand just to get an airplane ticket there. Not to mention that when I get there, it's got like a 15-hour flight. So I have to, you know, I have to buy my food. I have to get a translator. I have to get room and board. Like, that's not free. <laughs> like, where, where do people get free from? I don't get it. It doesn't exist. <laughs> Yeah, no, I think that's it. And that's what's, you know, so cool when you watch people like Joe, who, who I, I know is aware of your work, Joe Rogan. But to have the ability to have your own studio and fly people out, you know, and I'm, I'm not ever expecting to do that, but I want to be able to travel a lot more. I, I want to visit people. I want to take their classes and sit down with them at the end of it, you know. So yeah, I think especially this last year, I think a lot of us are kind of yearning to, to just be face to face and have some of those good organic conversations. And we were hoping to, you know, but, uh, calendars wouldn't, wouldn't permit. So. Anyway, well, Robert, I just want to say thank you so much. It's been a great conversation. There's been topics I didn't realize that we were even going to talk about, but I'm so glad that we did. But uh, I really appreciate you taking the time. I know you're busy, but I know the people listening would have got a lot out of this conversation. All right, man. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on, dude.